You have to have conviction as an acquirer that you can layer in your go-to-market machine and make the business grow faster. And sometimes you just have to sort of model and, and gain conviction. Welcome back to another episode of Inorganic. My name is Christian Hasseld. I'm your host. This is episode nine. Today, what we're going to talk about is doing more than one acquisition. A lot of SaaS CEOs say, hey, I want to do one deal to solve this one specific problem. I want to take out a competitor. I want to expand into Europe really quickly. There's, I have like one specific deal in mind that I want to do. Some CEOs say, I've got a platform play here, and I believe that I need to do multiple acquisitions. And multiple acquisitions um, requires a lot of thinking, a lot of strategy and planning with product. And today what I've brought with me is a guest who knows exactly how that sausage is made. And as you know, the promise of this podcast is to bring to you the practitioners who are on the front lines who have done this before. So with me today is Chris Barnes. He ran corporate development at Syndigo, which is a, a private equity backed roll up. Um, it fantastically put together a multi-hundred million dollar business over the course of five years. So Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Christian, for having me. Looking forward to the discussion. Yeah, I'm excited for this. Um, could you just start with a little bit of, of your background, um, you know, last sort of five years of your career? Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, actually spent about 15 years in private equity SaaS space, as you just mentioned. Um, I got my start actually at a company called MarketTrack, which is now known as Numerator. And actually went through a, a good couple turns in private equity there and uh, got the band back together with a couple of the same executives from Numerator to start Syndigo, which was known as Gladson. Went through a couple different leadership roles there and then actually tried to get my teeth into the brand side of the business. So I spent a little bit of uh, 2023 at a brand called Tropicana. Yeah, but the, the important highlight here, Chris, is... You don't have background in corporate development. You're a walk-on. So tell us a little bit, how the, how the heck did you get into corporate development? Yeah, so sitting after about two years of renewing the same customers year over year at MarketTrack, I was kind of hitting that glass ceiling. And I even walked into my CEO. I was like, I need something more challenging. And we had done a couple of different acquisitions at MarketTrack at the time. And I said, just give me a shot. You know, like, give me an opportunity to kind of play point on some of these up and coming things. I had kind of run some of our client advisory council. So heard what the customers actually were wanting from us to try to bring some of these companies together. And we started investigating that. And he said, you know what, go for it. Let's, let's try to figure out some of the players in the e-commerce promotional and pricing space. And sure as heck, we found a couple, we kind of, they let me run point on that, played project lead on that. And as we started getting deeper into the process, I was kind of the lead on a couple of those and then helped really incorporate that. And we did that for about four different, you know, e-commerce players at MarketTrack. And that was kind of my jump start into the corp depth space. Got it. So you basically said, hey, this is something I want to do. And the CEO said, I like you. I trust you. Uh, you don't have any background in this, but I'm going to give you a shot. And so you got yeah, a title. For sure. Like, obviously I had the sales background. I knew a lot about the product and how product came together so I could articulate that. And then I had been kind of an industry liaison and kind of, you know, went out there and rubbed shoulders with a lot of the other players in the space. So I knew who the key players were um, and all that kind of culminated into, hey, you know, you understand how these companies could come together and the value could provide our customers. That's that's the thing that um, really makes these walk-on M&A roles 
so valuable is if, if you're to say like, are you really good at like financial models and, you know, building out uh, uh, PowerPoint slides and doing all the consulting type of work, like the stuff you might get, you know, uh, MBA and con consultative experience in your background, like that's great to have. But the superpower is market knowledge, relationships, and understanding what, what one and one plus one equals three. Um, and that's really what you're describing is, is that is a superpower that is, that is really hard to hire. You, you can get that, if you can get that internally and find someone who can actually do the work, um, that can be, make, give you material speed um, in executing M&A strategy. So what I want to do is um, flip gears and come into sort of your experience at Syndigo specifically, because that is the case study for how to do a roll-up. So maybe for the audience, if you can just kind of lay the foundation of what Syndigo is, like what it, what it is as a company and sort of a overview of its acquisition model. Yeah. So Syndigo to start wasn't Syndigo. It was a company called Gladson and Gladson was primarily images and product information for planograms. That's how they started. And when we walked into the door, a couple of the executives, we realized there was such a lot, a lot more opportunity to expand it way beyond that, especially as e-commerce was just hitting its sweet spot. And so we looked at a lot of the different roadmaps out there and say, like, what are all the different types of companies that Gladson and all these others compete against? And where can we make some opportunity to invest in technology and process and just pump a lot of that back into it? And so Syndigo today, uh, to kind of answer your question, Syndigo today is a product information management company. Uh, they also get into consumer or customer experiences. So a lot of the PXM, P, you know, PIM space. Um, so really kind of bridging that gap between brands, retailers, and distributors and exchanging any of the product information that's relevant. Um, and more importantly, for the consumer facing product pages. Um, so that's kind of who Synego is. But when we started that, that's not who they were. That was not their identity. And we actually looked at, funny enough, we looked at some of the Profitero work out there. And we looked at some of the digital toolkit they were putting out there and all the different players that were part of those flywheels. And that started as kind of our stomping ground for who the potential M&A targets should actually be that we should start engaging with. What I actually want to do is double click on that because it's, um, you know, it's helpful for you to provide context on the business, essentially a business that helps brand manufacturers optimize the way that they engage with the consumer on retail sites. It's a very, you know, sort of a complex model. Each retailer has its own way of doing things, all that stuff. We could go into a rabbit hole on that. But what's more interesting is for this, our particular context is the how. You had this business, Gladson, and you said, you know what? This could be much, much more. There are many directions to go. It's very hard, especially for walk-on roles, to know how to help guide the company in building out the framework for what is the M&A we should do. And so I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about, number one, who were your partners first? Like who are the people that needed to be at the table? And then more tactically, how did you sort of frame out, was it the customer journey? Was it the competitor landscape? Like how did you actually decide the pieces of the puzzle you wanted to put together that would add material value to the business? So why don't we start with the team? Who is the team that was really deciding what this, what the kind of the palette needed to contain? Yeah, so Gladson had just been bought in 2017 uh, by Wix Capital, uh, and Wix was a boutique firm out of New York City, 
small private equity focused on the telecommunication space and data space. And they were a very strong partner and still are. Some of those individuals are still involved to a degree. Um, and they trusted our management team, which was just really three of us. It was our CEO, it was our chief revenue officer and myself who kind of played a lot of different roles, whether it was product marketing and product, you know, industry engagement, you, you name it, right? We kind of were the kind of the three horsemen along with Wix as kind of our trusted partner. And there were two major principals and partners there that were really backing us. So between the five of us, we were kind of the horsepower that were going in there, identifying these opportunities and doing all the diligence. We didn't have an army behind us. We didn't even have a CFO to do the modeling. Like we trusted our private equity to help with all that financials, but the rest of us had enough experience where we could kind of just pull up our sleeves and, and, and do a lot of that upfront diligence and, and kind of, you know, figure out who the major players were in the space. Got it. I'll talk a little, we'll get to the, how you partner with the investors as a part of this process. But so you've got that team, this core team. Now, how did you sort of figure out what are the things that you wanted to go get? What was that? What did that mapping exercise look like? Well, I still remember first day in some really dark, cringy office in, in Lombard, Illinois. And we literally just whiteboarded and we looked at people like Profitero's digital toolkit. And yep. we looked at all the major players that we knew in the space. And we kind of just looked at what are the different things that our customers in the diligence that Wix had done and said, hey, wouldn't it be great if you brought these companies together or mm. these types of functionality or solutions? Or I'm tired of logging into 10 different portals and platforms to do the same type of thing. How do you bring those together? And so that was really our jumping off point. But we literally went out there and mapped out who we wanted to engage, how we were going to engage with them. And I remember the first week of my role, literally sending emails and physical FedEx notes to all those CEOs saying, we'd love to have a discussion about M&A. Mm. &A. And funny enough, I think 99% of them laughed at us and said, actually, we, we, we would actually want to acquire you versus you acquire us. And so that was kind <laughs> of the, that was our first kind of like scratch head moment. Of, yeah. Okay, are we doing the right thing here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, the way you looked at it is what you're saying is, is you kind of mapped out, there's two ways to do this. And one way is to say, what is the customer journey? What is the jobs to be done? And sort of where's the gaps in our product? But you knew that there was a ton of gaps in your product. There was much more to do. So the other way you looked at it is, who are the adjacent players that we could bring together to provide this sort of end-to-end -end experience for the customer? And that's the lens that you took it through. Okay, so you have this list of capabilities. You have this whiteboard with all of these players. Did you prioritize sort of which ones you wanted to go get first? Was there a, we need to do X before we did Y? Did you do market sizing? Unlike you talk about Profitero, which is digital shelf analytics. For those not in commerce, we're just going to talk industry speak here. But um, it's, it's, it's more about how did you decide what the opportunity was and what you would go get in what order? Yeah, we certainly looked and kind of mapped out like the funnel of what does a brand or a retailer go through? What are the different steps? We, again, had come from a lot of experience from digital shelf analytics. That's where a lot of us had background um, at Numerator. We knew that was a means to the end. We were not going to go into that game right away. Uh, we knew there was the collection of data and just how do you be that one source where everybody wants to come to you because you had all the data that they needed? And so that was where we prioritized and we looked at data pool providers, 
We looked at, um, you know, nutritional companies. So really taking the core data that Gladson had already had and saying, like, how do we look at kind of the next evolution of the types of data that people really need uh, in exchange? And that was the first step of the different types of companies that we went out there and actually investigated and looked at. So you kind of map these these objects out. You, you you looked at like sort of what are the things that naturally fit around what we do today, and you said, all right, these there's all these different adjacencies that we can play in. When you picked a particular adjacency, just to double click on this, did you say we believe that nutritional data is a hundred million dollar market, and these are the three players? that have the right to win in this market. If we acquire one of them, we have the best shot at gaining the ma- maximizing our shot at that hundred million. Did you do that kind of exercise or did you delegate that exercise to the investors? Uh, it was hundred percent our internal team doing that type of investigation. We also leveraged an outside consultancy to do kind of a TAM, uh, more of a totable, total addressable market on the opportunity. We knew we could get into other categories. We knew we could kind of look at other types of data. We knew we could look at geographies, but we yeah. said, let's start with US. Yeah. What is the addressable market here? If we stumble upon you know, South America or Canada or even a European presence with some of these companies, great, that's a, that's a bonus to us. But you mentioned the one plus one equals three. Like we said, every opportunity has to be at least three, if not somewhere between three and 13, right? Like it's got to be that much incremental value to us. So we looked at that and we looked at probably the top three to five players in that space. And some of them were very big. Some of them were very small. And we said, we don't really want to double the size of our company. We've already got really strong foundation. Like how do we just kind of bring some incrementality to what we already have in, in our toolkit today. How many um, objects or how many companies did you pursue simultaneously at one time? I still have my spreadsheet from 2017. I think there was close to like 75 companies on that original outreach. And that was across a lot of different uh, just kind of you know, general collection of content, not yeah. even thinking about what the eco- ecosystem looks like today. Um, and certainly there's been a lot of consolidation, but I would say there's probably about 75 true companies that we went after and had dialogue with. I would say of those, I'd say probably 50 responded to us. Mm-hmm. And of those 50, 40 kind of laughed at us. Yeah. Um, and I'd say the other 10 were actually, let's have a dialogue discussion. And we kind of put those into the funnel, but we kept, you know, going back to the well and kind of saying, like, let's continue to try to broker some dialogue with these discussions. Did you prioritize um, your activity based on sort of the response? So, like, if you said you talk, started with like seventy objects, you basically did an outreach of some kind to these seventy objects. Based on the responses, you sort of started prioritizing hot lead, warm lead, cold lead. Let's go for the hot and work our way through rather than like another approach might be as, look, I absolutely want these three things from this list and I'm going to work them until I absolutely have success. Both work. One just takes a little bit longer. So did you kind of ever do any rationalization of the approach or did you take that sort of larger and let, let it, let the, let it sort of figure itself out. If you say, if, if you will, I would say first and foremost, we were excited people even responded back to us to begin with. So we'll, we took that as a positive, but we were also quite cautious. Um, the one thing my former CEO, Paul always kind of taught us was like trust, but verify. So like 
if they responded so quickly, like why? Yeah. Like, are they just trying to like just get rid of their company? Are they, are they actually wanting to do this or are they like looking at it as a parachute for their own business? So we were trying to err on that side of caution a little bit yeah. for people that were like almost overly excited that we reached out. So we kind of try to bridge that approach and kind of slow roll those people, but then kind of fast track the ones that were kind of, you know, mid tempered about it. So it was a little bit of both that we had. And and certainly we looked at guys that were like truly vested in their own companies. Like the, one of the first companies that we actually, uh, you know, acquired and looked at was a family run business out of Boston. So these guys were like, truly vested in their business they had been running it for a long time it was profitable and so like all those things just started adding up as positives on us but those are the types of things that we are looking for in the other types of you know executives that we are engaging with it's so counterintuitive this is a great point you make you do this outreach what you want is a response but if the response is too hasty then you're like whoa the response yep. is too hasty what's going on here so you almost want a little bit of a of a chase of a, a sense of like a chase and it's very nuanced it's really hard to sort of tell exactly like there it's that um conversation you have where they never really say that they're open to it and they're they're engaging but they're not engaging whereas in there's some who are like yeah we're totally open to acquisition okay what's wrong it's counterintuitive yeah. it's counterintuitive like so what plays did you run? Maybe just like to double click on that, because I think this is a great topic for those who haven't been through the journey before. What are the plays you run early on to sort of pick apart? Are they too eager? Is there something that won't make sense for us here? How did you sort of disqualify? One, obviously, we looked at this, the, the financials, right? We looked at their growth year over year. That was the easiest thing, right? That was a good litmus test for us to kind of understand, like, are they truly growing? Um, we certainly went out there and kind of triangulated a little bit with the customers that they were engaging with, if they were customers of ours too, just to kind of ask what the people thought about those companies. But I would tell you the one thing that we slow rolled and I still laugh about it is, we, I mean, one of the, we looked at a company, a nutritional company out of Washington, DC, and it was a bunch of young guys and they sat us down. We went through a great management presentation all day long. And then we kind of outlined the follow-up. Well, these guys were smart guys and buttoned up. We asked for financials over the next couple of weeks and they sent it to us within 48 hours. And it was like, whoa, like either you've been sitting on this or you are really, really intrigued yeah. and engaged and wanting to kind of get to the next level. Um, and so we had to kind of really quickly figure out that and almost like kind of like be psychologist or kind of like Columbo-esque with a lot of these people around like what was driving their sense of urgency and what was really motivating them personally in this. And so that's where I think we kind of put our, all of our, our heads together and like play kind of good cop, bad cop a little bit with some of these players to say like, yeah. Hey, we're looking at it. We're looking, you know, we're excited about it in the next couple of months. And so kind of really setting that expectation was really the biggest playbook for us. As sort of the ringleader, how did you, um, how did you use uh, the the players around you to help qualify and maintain the right level of engagement with the target? What was the role of the CEO? What was the role of the you know the C your CEO their CEO? Like how yeah. did you sort of run the dating process, if you will, in a way to help everyone get comfortable and convicted that a deal did or didn't make sense? 
I think when we looked at the players that were part of our inner circle, right, I think we had two major people as part of our original private equity at Wix. Um, they played a very much more of a, you know, banker and, and financial role. Like that was their expertise. Our CEO was more of the, does this make sound business for us? He kind of put on a little bit of a product hat as well too, because we didn't have anybody leaving our product at the time. And so kind of like, how does this integration actually play out? Are there some synergies that we can drive out of the business? Um, I played more of a kind of the personnel and does it make a cultural fit? Do these people mm-hmm. actually kind of come together? Can we bring them all together? And then we had a, a head of sales and chief revenue officer who said, you know, can we incorporate these people into our sales? Can we get the, you know, the 20% to 30% growth that we were actually trying to drive for in some of these businesses by bringing this on? Um, and how quickly could we do that? So each one of us kind of played that level of diligence in our conversations with the counterparts on their side. And, and they didn't always have a one-to-one counterpart. Sometimes it was the CEO and a, and a, you know, a CFO and a COO, and they kind of played the, you know, the three, you know, legs of the bar stool on their side. But that, that was kind of how we engaged on our side and the roles that we kind of knew that was our swim lane. That's what we were good at. That was our level of expertise. That was the diligence we were going to do. Yeah. And I want to go back on one thing, which is in smaller companies, those with revenues of south of 10 million in revenue like what you did you did a dozen acquisitions over five years what percentage of those were south of 10 million in revenue uh, probably about 70 70 75 percent of those were yeah. below 10 million yeah. there was only a couple that were really above that and yeah. it was truly the big guys that we've made yeah um and i got a lot of that's public information you guys yeah, yeah. can go out there it's and all see on pitch book yeah. so you could go get it yep. anywhere this is not super secret right but but what so i the reason why i asked that is you were talking a little bit earlier about sort of looking at sales growth as a qualifier. <clears throat> what I found in companies that are under 10 million in sales is they are very, they're trying to maintain either no burn or minimal burn. And the place where they tend to ration frequently is marketing and sales. And so when you're looking at their growth numbers, one of the things that is not always perfectly indicative of the opportunity is their growth rate because what maybe the CEO doesn't know how to run a sales team. There's not a lot of sales leaders who want to work in a sub 10 million good sales leaders that want to work in a sub 10 million revenue company. And so naturally you're not going to see the, you're not going to see the results that you might want to see from the outside. So how did you guys assess the potential of a business when the growth rate may have just been a function of either the leadership or the way the company was structured at the time versus you throw your hundred sellers on, it'd be a totally different business. I think there was probably two or three things in this. One, we looked at the personnel, right? Some of these people um, were not great salespeople, but maybe they just weren't given the opportunity to be great salespeople. Maybe they had that. And so we looked culturally what their, you know, what their process was for, um, you know, filling a pipeline, building a pipeline, you know, the customer success team, like, how do you actually go out there and engage? There were some of these businesses, they never talked to their customers. Imagine if you talk to your customers, how much incremental. Yeah. So that to us was just about process that we could drive. Just the accounting of that and putting it in Salesforce and like doing drip campaigns and getting them excited about the product offerings and engaging with them over and over again. That was something that Gladson had, and we had started at Gladson, and we could see the growth efforts just organically happening. Yeah. We said, imagine if we just did that at some of these acquisitions and then brought them into the great personnel that we had already built and you know, used our team as leaders 
think about the incremental sales without even offering them new solutions that we could bring. And then you give them more solution offerings. Great. That, that drives that 20 to 30% growth offerings that we are looking for. So that's how we kind of approached it is, is looking at both the personnel and then just more of the process that we could, you know, really adhere to. I think what you're, you're saying, and I'll say it slightly differently is you have to have conviction as an acquirer that you can layer in your go-to-market machine and make the business grow faster. And sometimes you just have to sort of model and, and gain conviction that there, the opportunities there, um, you need the partnership of the revenue leader in your company. Um, you need um, the product um, or whoever's kind of leading the sort of the strategy of the business to say, look, this is a gap in our offering. We know that if we layer this in, we're going to have a cross sell. We're going to have an upsell opportunity that we don't have right now. You sort of have to get convicted because you won't, there's, you're never going to get signal from the target. I've seen, you know, in my role, I see a lot of companies every year and their growth rates are all over the place, anywhere from 15% to 50%. And you're the, you know, the hundred percent year over year grower. And when your team comes in and look at it, they're like, this is a terrible business. It's like, it's a terrible business without an, without a GTM function. This is what we bring to the table. So how do you get convicted? That leads into the question of how did you decide what it is worth? If you come into a business that's 5 million growing at 25% and you guys have a belief that you can turn that 25% into 50, 75 or hundred, how did you guys approach valuing an asset? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a tough equation regardless. Um, And certainly the numbers from five to 10 years ago are not the numbers of today either. Um, And we were really realistic. And, and I think we were also at a time where the market was starting to heat up. So you didn't have a ton of that funny money valuation out there. I mean, there was still some of the CEOs that thought this was retirement for them. And certainly it was for in some cases. Um, but when we looked at it, we looked at, and we weren't the playbook of rip and replace. Like we weren't going to cut all the costs. We weren't going to cut all the people. Like mm-hmm. that was not the mentality. And we were very forthcoming with a lot of the teams that, we wanted people to stay on. We wanted people to reinvest. We wanted people to kind of continue to have that conviction that you talked about. This was still their baby, just getting an investment on our side from people a process. So when we looked at that, we just said like, what are the incremental values? We went through the financial modeling of where we thought we could get with our current client set to sell them um, you know, the, the incremental solutions. Or vice versa, where could we sell the you know, the legacy Gladson and Syndigo solutions to the to the companies that we are acquiring, and where were those crossovers? So we looked at all that as part of our financial modeling, yeah. and said if that's what we can do, what can we do in year one? What can we do in year two? What can we do in year three? And that certainly kind of yielded to the kind of numbers that we got to. And you know, again, there was there was companies that were you know one point five x. There was companies that were nine x. Right, and it was everything in between that. Yeah. Um, that we were looking at. What was the role of your investor partners? When did you bring them in? Like just to uncover at what cadence did you engage with them? What role did they play in deals? What tools did they bring you to help you um, be a successful acquirer? I would say, so at Synago, we had three different investors across the journey of the, you know, the six years we were there. Wix was the first one. We brought on the Jordan company afterwards and then Summit 
obviously owns a majority stake in them today. Um, so each one of those had a different type of role based on their size and as, as much as they wanted to be ingrained in the process. You know, Wix was part of it in the trenches with us. We thought of them as part of our executive management team. They didn't have a diligence team. And so they really trusted us and they were there from day one. Um, when Jordan came on board, um, they had a whole operational function to the Jordan company. So if you're not familiar with them, uh, based in New York City, they also have an office in Chicago. And so they were helping us with things like pricing models and financials and understanding, you know, where there's opportunity to, to find some efficiencies and things like shipping costs and things of that nature. So they were looking for us to kind of say, bring the top five, 5% of the deals that you have already vetted out to us. And then let's start that process. Yeah. So that funnel was a whole lot bigger for us. And then when it got to a, a point in that funnel is when we started incorporating them. And then um, later on, we had Summit and Summit really took kind of the lead on everything, right? As yeah. soon as there was an opportunity, they wanted to be a part of it from day one and they had their analysts and their principals as part of that on day one. What did that look like? Did you do weekly pipeline reviews with them? Uh, not weekly, but um, probably you know, at least once a month, kind of, kind of a red, yellow, green on where these deals were, yep. where they were stalled, where are the other opportunistic ones? Um, and again, a lot of it was more inbound because at that point we became kind of the people that people do want to engage with, yeah. which is funny enough, going back to our original story, the table like, all those people, all those people who laughed at us were now coming back to the table saying, Hey, we'd love to have a discussion with you about M&A. And, and so it was very full circle on a lot of those conversations, but it was a whole lot of inbound that we had to sift through. And as my role as part of corporate M&A in corporate development was really I'm going to sift through all that junk to find uh, like the gems out there. And those were the only deals that I would ever bring Summit or Jordan. Like what are the one or two things that you really valued um, in terms of resourcing from the, the, um, your investor partners? Like what are the couple of things they did? Uh, I'll tell you of all the different companies that we were acquiring or looking to acquire, every single one of them had a different pricing model. We didn't have any clue on really how to even approach that. And they gave us a ton of guidance on how to standardize pricing across the board, mm. whether it was countries, solutions, yeah. market size, like there are so many variables in that. And they provided us a ton of, of really good ideas and support along that. I would also kind of just say our go-to-market in terms of what's the perception that our customers have of us and how do we potentially change that if there is anything negative or questionable in that? And they really gave us a lot of great ideas on how to approach that and how to really put the customer back in the middle and first um, and really get their thoughts around how to drive our product roadmap and things of that nature. And so I think those two things mm -hmm. really yielded kind of a, a great partnership with our investors. I think so. Number one is pricing strategy. Number two, what you're saying is they, they had the ability to um, access expert networks that could get you an outside perspective um, an outside in perspective. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And they also were very tapped into the industry. So they knew a lot of the key players. They yeah. knew what people were saying in the market from all their diligence. And we wanted to make sure that when people thought about Syndigo, they thought about us in a good vein. Yeah. I think um, we underappreciate the importance of having outside perspective, um, doing the work that we do. We have to protect ourselves from insular thinking and mm -hmm. the investors really have 
access to a number of different vehicles to get outside perspective. That's one of the ways that I love to use um, our partners at Insight. They can instantly access customer um, competition and a lot of things you just ordinarily can't do from within our four walls, either for the available of the um, capabilities themselves or just the fact that when you're asking the question, you're not necessarily going to get, you, you may get the answer you want to hear. You may not get the answer that you need to, you need to hear um, as a part of that. Going, thinking back over five years and 12 deals, maybe what are the sort of three things you learned, do's and don'ts? Yeah, I'd say first off, and this could be a do or don't, is just rip the bandaid off faster, both from if a deal is not going to work out or once you do bring them on and part of the process like once you want to integrate them, just rip the bandaid off. Both your customers and the internal people are going to appreciate that more. Nobody loves change, but change is actually sometimes not a bad thing. And I think the way that you frame it up to both your customers and your internal personnel is really important. So that was one thing. I'd say also, I think we learned you can't rebuild everything. Sometimes people think building stuff happens overnight. And as part of diligence, you've always think like people have thought through every step of the process. No, like we always were under the, the guise of the first 90 days should be do no harm when you integrate companies. So like, that's kind of the mentality I think that we learned and I think was actually really beneficial to us. And I think the other part was a lot of the customers thought just because you bought two companies that they you know, one plus one equal like 1.25 when it came to cost. And that's not the case either. And I think being able to communicate that better and set the expectations with customers of when you are going to do these deals, this is for their benefit of, of time and ease and comfort and, you know, one point of contact. And it's not just a cost thing. And I think being able to temper that, it was really important. So I think those are probably three key yep. learnings that I continue to evolve in. And what do you think, what is a, if, if you were talking to a CEO who says, I want to buy four or five companies and sort of put them together and create a platform, what are the limitations? What are the risks that they need to think about? I would say one has got to be the culture side. I think I mentioned a little bit, like bringing all these companies together. It sounds great on paper. Sometimes culturally, it doesn't always work out. And that could be geography cultures, that could be the, you know, the product team's culture and how they work. It could be how people, to mention what you said before, how people are thinking about financially and how the sales team go to, goes to market. I think you need to make sure you find the right companies that are going to fit the mold or kind of test each other in a healthy way. So those are some of the limitations. Um, and I would also say kind of the overall integration and building these together. Nobody wants to have to log into multiple different systems. So do you have the resources? Do you have the bandwidth? Do you have the time to go out there and build it all together? And I think those are probably some key limitations that executives and their investors need to think through. I think I think that actual last point, I mean, first of all, culture, 100%. Like, Whatever you think you're going to do with culture, you have to over-index on really bringing people together. And it's a very high expense. People don't quite realize that by bringing people together, what that usually means is you literally need to get everybody together, do team building, do sort of the SKOs or do like get people physically together. There's no, you can't do it virtually. It doesn't work virtually. You have to bring them together. The second thing that I think I'll capitalize on what you're saying is you need to actually 
plan on investing in resourcing in the team, product and engineering that are going to bring the pieces together. Because if the promise is a more unified experience for the customer, and you think just sort of having a web page with a bunch of links to a bunch of different logins is going to solve, um, over time, you'll ultimately frustrate your customer. It will be a friction for the business. I think that's what I heard you saying. Exactly. And a lot of people aren't ready. Like some people aren't ready for that. You actually need to carve out product and engineering time for bringing all the pieces together. And when you're bringing together 12 pieces that are all different stacks and logins and, you know, infrastructure, like it's, that's a lot of work. It's a multi-year effort. Um, and it takes somebody who knows how to do that um, to really make it work. So I think that's a, a great point. So awesome takeaways here, Chris. I really appreciate you shedding um, light on this roll-up approach and and talking about the framework and the process and the involvement of investors and also you know what you need to be thinking about as a CEO if you're going to do this. Like here's the things you need to look out for. So really appreciate you taking the time to come on the pod and talk about it, Chris. Yeah, appreciate the time and enjoy the conversation. Thanks a lot, Christian. And to the listeners, I want to thank you for joining us for another episode of Inorganic. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do like and subscribe. And until next time, we'll see you.